The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I was very fortunate because they shared with me just some of their own reflections on uh, some of the deepest aspects of uh, the Buddhist teachings. And so I found uh, the experience that week of both study and practice to be tremendously inspirational. And it also gave me a view for the vastness and the kind of multidimensional nature of of all of this, of what we call the human condition. And my hope tonight is in some way to convey that to you, to actually pass that along as I found it so useful and inspirational. And I'm going to do my best to the best of my abilities to try to embody that and uh, to really uh, offer it in a way that is for your own exploration, your own investigation. And really to be a source of encouragement or nourishment for your own practice. So as much as you can, see if you can stay with uh, this presence that we were just cultivating for the last 30 minutes. So it's often, you know, when we're done with the sitting, we can quickly go, oh, there's the bell, switched, okay, I'm here, I'm ready. Uh, And see if you can just stay as much as you can, dropping in from time to time, seeing how is your body, how is the mind, how is it landing. And I also want you to reflect if you notice the mind taking a position, because this is a strong tendency. Our minds will almost always want to take a position relative to something that we're hearing. And so this is also an aspect of uh, practice, noticing this tendency to want to put down that marker and say, oh yeah, this is how I relate to this, or this is my belief about this. And I will try to offer a lot of different vantage points as much as I can. And it's mostly uh, pointers or suggestions that then you can take for your own reflection. So let me frame the exploration a little bit. I'll give you a bit of a frame, and then we'll move into uh, the topics that I have for us to reflect on. So the first frame that I want to give you is that this is not linear. So even as I describe it, uh, there may be a sense of, okay, so this is what he's saying, and I think this is maybe about where I am, and so if I go here, then this, and then that, and this. We can tend to get into this habit, which is very strong, to think about things in a linear fashion. And the practice, as all of you know, is not linear. It comes in stages. It comes in phases of development. And often there are points where we need to go over the territory more than once. That when we see it once, we kind of got it, but then we have to go through it a couple of times until we really get it. So this is also an aspect of practice. The other thing that I'll mention is that uh, within the teachings, it's often talked about how uh, that reference point that I talked, that uh, taking a position that I mentioned, uh, as well as a sense of needing to get something, that that's not actually let go of until the very end of the path. So if you find that occurring, you can say, oh good, I'm seeing it. I'm practicing in the moment. And we actually can celebrate the seeing of it because that is a profound aspect of the practice. And we can hold ourselves with compassion because we know that this is part of the human condition. 
The other piece that I'd like to just frame is that a lot of what I'm talking about is a shift in perception. So it's the way that we are perceiving experience that actually changes the way that we relate to it. And it's the shift of perception that can lead to the deepest levels of understanding, those deepest moments of peace. And we've all had them to varying degrees in our own life. I'm sure if I asked any of you in this room, you could point to moments where you said, yes, I touched into a sense of contentment, a sense of peace, a sense of real stillness, even if it was just for a moment. It can be those moments when you look at Uh, the beautiful sunset, actually, that we're about to have in a moment as it's going down. And we can just feel that sense of awe, of the vastness of a moment. And there's not that self-reflection. That self-reflective quality just drops for a moment. And we can feel a sense of knowing, of peace or contentment. And so I just offer that in your own experience right now, you can just recall a moment in whatever degree, so it's, it's not a matter of was it some huge earth-shaking moment or was it just a second, something in your own experience that you can feel that sense of real knowing, of peacefulness, of stillness, of contentment, of ease, however it might express itself. The last two frames that I want to offer are... Uh, the ethical or moral frame. So this is one uh, that is actually central to the Buddhist teachings. And it arises out of a particular view or an understanding. And it also arises out of a sense of once we have that view, we become much more attuned to how we act in the world. So we take responsibility, but we don't take it personally. And so this view is starting to see what's unfolding as a natural process, as phenomenon that have certain causes and conditions that produce certain experiences in our life. And we can hold this with a larger frame, a frame of can I see the causes and conditions without needing to add to them, to add a narrative or a story that then compounds the experience, and often it's the experience of suffering. This is why so many of us come to the teachings, that we hear something that resonates and goes, oh, this is actually talking about suffering. And I so rarely hear that. But what's so paradoxical about it is that when we hear about suffering, we also touch into that sense of non-suffering, the release of it. We start to feel this other level that is the letting go, which is when we hold that view, not taking it personally, holding it with this larger frame of this is a process, so we become less enamored with the content. And this also means that then we start to become acutely aware of how we can cause harm to ourself with our beliefs, our thoughts, or even our attitudes, the way that we relate to ourselves. if it's compassionate or not, are we judging who we are or who we think we should be? And how we also do that with other people, where we have a sense of causing harm in our relationships. And we become more attuned and sensitive to this so that we develop more skill in our life about how to navigate it in a way that causes less harm. And that's really 
one of the core teachings of the Buddha is to not cause harm. And so this is the care or the responsibility. So that's within the ethical or moral frame. And the last one is this difference between narrative and immediate first-hand experience or that knowing, that intuition that we all know from practice. And so the narrative is how we often relate to life and our experience. We construct the story of, I was born at this time, I had these experiences, all this happened to me, and this is going to happen to me in the future. So we construct a story. We become fascinated with the content. So we want to know the details and the drama of the experience, the whys and the whats. If we shift the frame or the view to this more direct, immediate, first-hand experience, which we were all doing when we were practicing, just coming into what's here right now in my experience, a sense of the body, a sense of the breath. I'm noticing a thought. Oh, that's a pattern. But you're noticing it right here, right now. It's immediate. It's what is in the moment. So this is that direct, immediate, first-hand experience. So what you're starting to notice is the process, not the content. And the process is with that steady attention that attunes to the characteristics of whatever is arising. If it's pain, notice how you brace against the pain. If it's a really judgmental thought, notice how you immediately latch onto that and say, oh, that's true, that's, that's who I am, right? We start to notice the process and how that happens, the workings of the mind and the heart. So then we start to tune into the how and the who, which is different than the what's and the why's. So I'll give you a short quote, which I actually uh, love because it's got a bit of humor in it. It comes from Ajahn Brahm. Many of you may know Ajahn Brahm. He's uh, a wonderful teacher in Australia. And this is what he had to say about uh, one of the uh, narratives that we find uh, in our culture these days. This is the narrative of science versus religion, right? And how these have different stories often or different descriptions. So this is what he says. He says, I have found science and religion hold many things in common, one of which is dogma. I remember remember a delightfully descriptive saying from my student days. The eminence of a great scientist is measured by the length of time he or she obstructs progress in their field. As a recent debate in Australia between science and religion, at which I was a speaker, I took a poignant question from a member of the audience. When I look through a telescope at the beauty of the stars, said the devout Catholic woman, I always feel that my religion is threatened. Madam, when a scientist looks down the other end of a telescope, from the big end to the small end, I replied, to gaze upon the one who is looking, then science is threatened. So this is where we don't hold too fast to any view. They're both useful, but we need to recognize that they're narratives and that they are views. That what we're actually interested in is the immediacy of the experience in any given moment. And when we actually touch it in an intimate way, that's when we can experience freedom or release or that dropping below the suffering of our story, whatever it might be. It's not to say that 
the story is not important. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But from the practice perspective, that deepest release is actually at the level of dropping below to what is here right now. So I'm going to speak for the rest of the evening really on uh, a particular aspect of the teachings. This is, there's often a teaching on what's called the three marks of existence. And I'm going to be speaking on the third one, which is anatta. And it's often translated as the teaching of non-self. But I'm actually going to take a different uh, word to talk about the experience. And as much as I'm able, I'm going to give you the Buddha's teachings on this uh, way of looking at experience or existence. And then I'm going to use some examples and metaphor to actually point you in this direction so that even right now, you can start to reflect on this, not as a concept, not as a narrative or an idea, but as something that is accessible, a way of holding experience. So this is a quote from another one of my teachers, um, Sayada Utejaniya. And he says that the term non-self or anatta is usually misunderstood. People tend to think of it in terms of an absence of self, and this becomes, and this no-self becomes a concept. This is why I don't even like using the term when I talk about Dhamma, which is just the teachings of the Buddha. I prefer it when people talk about their actual experience, about what they have been watching or experiencing. When there's a strong momentum in practice, it becomes almost natural to the mind to look at the reality of the situation rather than the concepts. So right now, are you aware? Just reflect. Is there awareness? Are you present? And with that presence or that awareness, can you sense that there are only six things that are happening? You're seeing, you're hearing, you're feeling, tasting, there's touch, and then there's mental objects, thoughts, moods, things that we can be aware of. These six things come together in the form of a story about what we tell ourselves is happening right now. But we can tune in. Awareness is here. Can I sense whatever is predominant in my experience? Which of these six six things has got my attention in this moment? Maybe it's seeing. Maybe it's hearing. And then can you sense that there is an immediacy to right now? This moment will never happen again, right now. And there's no story that we have to construct. We can just be right in the moment. So one point that um, I want to share a little bit about is distinguishing between um, this Western concept of a psychological self from the Buddha's use of the word self. And I think this is important because often these terms get conflated. So there's a wonderful piece by Jack Angler called Being Somebody and Being Nobody. And this is what he had to say about the psychological self. So he was quoting actually Anne Klein, who was a contemporary feminist, who was reflecting on some of these narratives that get constructed in our society. 
And so what he reflects on is that this idea of an autonomous individual with a sense of differentiated selfhood, having its own ambitions, goals, designs, and destiny is the product of about the last 300 years. And he quotes an anthropologist who says that the Western concept of the person as a bounded, unique, more or less integrated, motivational, and cognitive universe, a dynamic center of awareness, emotion, judgment, and action, organized into a distinctive whole and set, contrastively both against a social and natural background, is, however encourageable it may seem to us, a rather peculiar idea within the context of the world's cultures. So many non-Western cultures, and we know this for any of us that have spent time in other cultures, don't hold the view of this central self, this organizing principle. And it ties into this sense of we need to look at what is unconscious. What are the beliefs or the ideas or the narratives that become privileged or regarded as superior to other views? And this can get us into the realm of isms, all the different isms that we can hold to. Even Buddhism, we can hold to that. And we can even reflect a little bit about how often do people, institutions, or organizations take up a certain reference point and fail to consciously reflect on how that reference point can cause harm. So this moves us into the realm of social justice. So I want to keep the frame wide in thinking about this concept of self, that it's actually a Western European construct of fairly recent uh, times. So if that's the Western European psychological concept of self, what did the Buddha have to say about this? What was the actual teaching when the Buddha was referring to this? So this is from... Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a wonderful practitioner and scholar. And he talks about the Buddha referring to self as just a habit or a tendency to identify and experience as I or mine, to take it as me. And so Bhikkhu Bodhi says that the effective antidote is not to maintain there is no self, which, as was mentioned before, is just a concept but to demonstrate that our identification of things as self is an error, a misidentification, a mistake in the literal sense of taking up something wrongly. We're taking something up, just like the six experiences that are going on at any given moment, and then we frame it into something that's much larger. So we're picking it wrongly. Our perception is off. So again, this is the perceptual process. So these are the words from the Buddha, as far as we know talking about this process. So whatever form there is, past, present, and future, internal or external, one sees all form as it really is with correct wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Whatever feeling, perception, volitional activities, which are those states of mind, consciousness, that our past, present, and future, one sees all consciousness as it really is with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Knowing and seeing thus, there is no more eye-making, mind-making, or underlying tendencies 
to regard this body with its consciousness and in regard to all external objects as I am. So what's interesting is that the Buddha used references to a self. And actually this is some aspect that um, is not often talked about. So what that refers to is that the Buddha understood that there is a sense of a, a functionality that we all have that's useful. So this is not to throw out the personality or our relationships or our work. It's just a way of how do we relate to it. So this is another quote. This is from the Dhammapada. Your own self is your own mainstay. For who else could your mainstay be? If you yourself well-trained, you obtain a mainstay hard to obtain. So talking about your own sense of well-being, your own sense of moment-to-moment experience as being a mainstay, but not being confined by that view. So from this context, what we're pointing at, or what I'm suggesting, is that our habit is to hold the perception to say that all experience needs to reference back to me, which is kind of a funny frame. I mean, even now, as I'm talking, right, if I take the view that all of you need to reference me, I bet many of you would disagree, right? Because this idea that everything is self-referential is just a way that the perception gets warped. It gets stuck to our way of viewing the world, and it's how we can get caught in endless loops and patterns. So this is from a more contemporary practitioner. This is from John Kabat-Zinn. Many of you probably know John Kabat-Zinn. He says, mindfulness can only be understood from the inside out. It is a way of being and a way of seeing that has profound implications for understanding the nature of our own minds and bodies and for living life as if it really mattered. It is primarily what Francisco Varela termed a first-person experience. Without that living foundation, none of what really matters is available to us in ways that are maximally healing, transformative, compassionate, and wise. So it's not that we throw out this sense of well-being, this sense of how we relate to other people, to ourselves. We just come into a more accurate perception of what is most useful what is most supportive to developing compassion, wisdom, for healing, for transformation. So one thing that I'll share is that for many years in my own practice, I used to think that I would be on a long retreat and something would come up and I would get stuck and I would be wrestling with some pattern, some thought. And it could be an old pattern, a pattern from childhood or some self-belief. And I would think in the back of my mind, ah, there goes my practice. It's completely derailed. Now I'm just caught in this, I don't know what this is, but, and it could be days, it could be weeks. And what I was missing was that the way that I was relating to that was, well, this isn't practice. This actually isn't supportive of wisdom and compassion. But that was a misperception. I was creating the idea that I need to be here, and where I am is right there. 
And actually, when I reframe it and see it as, this is what's here in the moment. This is what's immediate. How can I relate to this in a way that doesn't cause more harm to myself or to others? And drop into the immediacy of what's here in this moment. And watch when there's that shift of perception. When I can see it as, oh, that's the painful belief. That's the painful thought. And the minute you clearly see that, you perceive it, not in the sense of you see it externally, but you touch it, you make contact with the compassion and the wisdom, you can feel that moment of release, of dropping. And it can be even just a margin of a little bit more ease. So I'll use a metaphor. I promised I would use a metaphor. And... This is the metaphor that um, I'd like you to, um, you can try it on. And all metaphors are limited. So know that this one is limited. And if it's useful to you, then you can use it. And if it's not, then find some other metaphor. You'll probably find a much better one than I came up with. And the metaphor is just a way of describing this unfolding or understanding of experience. So this central teaching that the Buddha talked about around eye-making, this tendency or this habit of perception to make everything self-referential, as this is me, this is mine, this is a sense of I. So the metaphor is actually different phases of water. And I'll explain each of these different phases as different ways of understanding in your own experience how you can actually experience some of the transformation of perception that happens. So when we first begin practice, we understand this tendency of this self-referencing, of this eye-making on kind of a macro level. So this is the, what I would call the level of ice. It's pretty solid. We can feel the edges. It appears pretty clearly defined. We can see, yep, this is me. This is not me. This is who I am, this is my story, this is my life, and this is not. And so we have just a macro sense of this I. And some very common examples that I'm sure we all have, you can look at a picture of yourself from when you were very young. And as you look at that picture, you can wonder, wow, I look so different now, and yet I don't feel that much older. It's like this funny phenomenon where the awareness feels ageless, and yet you see a picture of you as a young child, and you go, wow, I don't quite understand how this unfolds. And there can be this little sense of, yes, I can sense into it's not quite as defined or neatly structured as I thought it was. So I have a very, um, I guess it's an old example um, that I often reflect on. It was the experience of going to a high school reunion. I don't know how many of you have had the experience of going to a high school reunion. But for me, the experience was I went back. I was connecting with these people that I knew from a particular time, a particular place, and a particular environment with a set of experiences. And what was fascinating to me was as I was there interacting with these people, it was as though we had warped back in time to high school and that there hadn't been any growth at all. And, in fact, the conversations were going back to these high school experiences, which, you know, quite frankly, were embarrassing some of the times. And I kept 
watching is going, wow, this is really incongruent. This is fascinating. Like here, this is, but what was happening was that configuration of uh, people from high school had shared that context and then gone away. And so there wasn't any further context. There wasn't any ability to see change or growth or that other characteristic that things naturally change and it's impermanent. So it was stuck. It was fixed. And I could feel the friction of it. I could feel how I was uncomfortable. And I was kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm related to this. I don't know if I want to go to the next high school reunion. And so actually seeing that, but this is on that macro level, right? So we can feel where we go, oh, wow, those edges, yep. But then we can see how that they start to melt a little bit. They're a little bit more soft. So after we practice for a while, we refine our understanding and we notice that our reference points become a little more fluid. They're not quite that uh, you know, teenage high schooler that's stuck in time that says, this is how the world is and this is who I am. It actually becomes a little bit more fluid. And this is like the water phase. So this is where there's much more of that fluidity, of that ability to receive, to be a soft, yielding surface, as Rebecca Bradshaw talks about, rather than this impenetrable shield that we brace against life. So water has this ability to take any form. Pour it into a cup, it becomes the cup. Float something in it, it takes the shape of whatever is in it. So we become much more fluid, less reference points. And yet at this time, it's where we can become acutely aware of some of the rub, the sting, or the friction. That sense of, oh yeah, there's pain here. I can feel it. I've acted in a way that maybe took up a real strong reference point and it wasn't so helpful. I, either towards myself or towards a dear friend. I might have said something that I regret. I wish I could take those words back. And one of the examples that I have, um, I have two that I'll share with you. One is uh, the experience I had of walking away from a profession after eight years. So I had trained uh, as a lawyer, and I had done all the schooling, and I had done all this work and taken tests and gone to law school and then been a lawyer, and then one day I said, no, this is <laughs> wrong path, and walked away. And to my surprise... It wasn't as though I particularly enjoyed uh, being a corporate lawyer. There were aspects of it that I liked, but it wasn't as though it was my life passions. To my surprise, I was shocked at how much I was grieving the transition, that loss of a particular identity. I hadn't even seen in subtle levels how I had taken on that identity or that role. And so we can feel this often in major transitions in our life. If we change a job or we... Uh, become really sick or we have some other event that just shocks us out of our complacency for a moment. Something. We see something. Some experience. And we lose that sense of strong identity. And we can drop into just the sense of what I often talk about as this kind of uh, quivering heart. The felt sense of Oh, I can feel this. There's something here. But you're actually very intimate with the experience. There's the knowing and the touching of it so that it actually affects your whole being. It affects the way you see the world. 
And when you come out of that experience, your perception is changed. It can't not be because it is the nature of those events, those changes or those moments to actually alter our perception, the way that we relate to our life. So I have a more uh, kind of silly example, but I was asking my wife, I said, do you have any examples, uh, you know, where uh, I've taken a reference point. She started listing one, two, three, four, five. So I said, okay, that's, <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> there was after about 10 different examples. But she was very kind in reflecting how it's habitual. It's so automatic for us to take up these small reference points that can accumulate in big ways, this sense of identity, a sense of who you are. So the last phase that I'll talk about is, um, it's like this uh, gas phase of water. It's like mist. And so this is at the deepest level of understanding. And this is where we notice that the reference points are simply appearing and disappearing. So in the second level, in the water phase, we get more tuned to where we pick them up. We feel the sting of picking them up. And we become much more sensitive to seeing how they affect us, both in our hearts and our minds. And then in the deepest level, we start to perceive how there are multiple perspectives. There are multiple ways of viewing an experience. And that we don't actually need to affix any reference point. It's not necessary. So this is where nature can unfold without us adding any sense of distress or dis-ease. So we realize, as George Mumford says, the eye of the hurricane. We come into that innermost place of stillness. So again, right now you can just check in. Can you sense your own presence? Does it need a reference point? Do you have to pick up a position? Or can you simply feel the aliveness of this moment, of your body, of whatever your experience is? So one of the examples, uh, I was on a longer retreat, and I was... uh, walking up a hill, and I saw this mist. It was this beautiful cloud of mist outside of the meditation center, and I walked up the hill, and as I got into this cloud of mist, it wasn't there anymore. I thought, well, that's really interesting. I saw this very concrete thing from a distance, and now I'm standing in it, and yet I don't see it. And it was only until I stopped for a moment and was really still, and just stood there, that I could see the faint flickering of little particles of water. It was almost so faint that I couldn't perceive them. And that is this deepest level of seeing how these reference points arise and pass away all the time. And that the more that we can start to develop this sense of not needing to pick up a strong position or a reference point, becoming still, trusting our own knowing, we can experience this deepest level. And this is also the phase of practice where real equanimity shows up. This is where the heart is not pulled or pushed. So it's a sense of surrendering 
or it stops applying strategies to try and fix or control. Our perception completely shifts. Suzuki Roshi had a funny phrase. He used to talk about samsara as the need or tendency to fix. He said, it's that simple. It's when we try all our strategies and everything we know to try to fix a situation, and then there comes a moment where we realize that the only thing left we can do is to open wide our own heart. And it's in that balance, the capacity to hold the wide, open heart, that place of equanimity, that we can allow all of it to roll through and not need to be defined by any of it. So I'm going to close with um, three different views on this state. So I think it's more powerful to hear three different voices rather than just my voice. And they're from three uh, different amazing uh, practitioners. The, one, the first is from Mei Kao, who is uh, in this uh, tradition or in this lineage, was believed to be a female arahant. So this is one who has actually realized the end of the path. A mind that is no longer affected by delusion, by greed, or by hatred. Let go of any sense of reference. So this is how she described the moment. And again, seeing if you can just let the words roll over as a pointer. So staying in your own reflective state. Let them drop in. So she says, try imagining yourself standing in an empty room. You look around and you see only empty space everywhere. Absolutely nothing occupies that space except you, standing in the middle of the room. Admiring its emptiness, you forget about yourself. You forget that you occupy a central position in that space. How then can the room be empty? As long as someone remains in the room, it's not truly empty. When you finally realize that the room can never be truly empty until you depart, that is the moment when that fundamental delusion about your true self disintegrates and the pure delusion-free mind arises. So this next voice is from... Master Xinhua, who was from actually the Chan Buddhist school. And I want you to see if you can hear a similar thread. Using your inherent wisdom, observe inwardly the mind and body and outwardly the world. Completely understand both as you would look through a pane of glass. From the outside, seeing in, and from the inside, seeing out. Inwardly, there is nobody and mind, and outwardly, there is no world. But although there is nobody, nor mind, nor world, the body and mind and the world function in accord with one another. Although they function together, they are not attached to one another. This is called recognizing your own original mind. The original self-nature, the true mind, clearly penetrates within and without. 
The recognition of your original mind is liberation. When you are not attached to sense objects or false thought, you obtain liberation. That was Master Xunhua. The last one is uh, from the Buddha. I always like to close with just the unadorned words of the Buddha. They are so precise in so many ways. So this is from the Bahiya Sutta, which many of you are probably familiar with. And if you're not, uh, then you can just again listen and let it roll through. If you are familiar, see if you can hear it again with the freshness of this moment. It's new. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. This, Bahia, is how you should train yourself. When, Bahia, there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When, Bahia, there is no you there, then, Bahia, you are neither here nor there, nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So thank you for your kind uh, attention. And let us sit together for a few moments in the thundering silence which is louder than any words. So may our practice together be for our own benefit, our own freedom, as well as the benefit and freedom of all beings. We have a few minutes um, for questions and to really hear from the wisdom of this community. And just to say that it's not that I have <laughs> any magical answers. So. And we'll use the microphone tonight for questions. So just hold it close to your mouth and we'll pass it around the room. And if you could say your name, that appreciate that just so we can have a sense of thank you <clears throat> thanks my name is Lyndon um, thank you very much for your teaching tonight I'm um, <clears throat> I'm new here and I just moved to Minneapolis and I'm also uh, kind of a young practitioner um, I've been you know reading for a few years but just really trying to uh, launch a, gr- a grounded, solid practice. And um, the teaching of no self has been a challenge for someone young or n- sort of new to the concepts for me. Not totally new, but, you know, just uh, it's always... And I was wondering if maybe you could speak um, to the teaching of dependent origination, because for me... That was so helpful to me. I heard 
uh, my first encounter with it was Thich Nhat Hanh, mm. and he, he spoke of, of a flower. Well, I've heard him teach it in different ways. One was a piece of paper, and the other was um, a flower. And he spoke of how a flower is completely comprised of non-flower elements. And a light kind of came on for me in that way. And, I, you know, I look at my own life, and um, I have tremendous habit energy, um, doing the things I, you know, finding the discipline to do the things I would like to do is very hard, you know. But um, but when I spend some time meditating about dependent arising, I realize that it's true. I'm comprised entirely of non-London stuff, you know. Uh-huh. And um, it's been really helpful to me. Mm. So perhaps you could comment on that. And thanks again. Yeah, I've really enjoyed. I've I've heard you online as well, and Mark. That's part. Yeah, you know, I'm really. Uh, I'm so grateful to be here in Minneapolis. There's so many resources for the Dharma here. So thank you again. Thank you for comment and your reflections. Um, and I think actually um, you've already kind of beautifully, beautifully suggested the answer to your question, which is that um, rather than dependent origination being a concept, your own experience was that in the moment of hearing how flower is comprised of so many non-flower elements, the soil, the water, the sun, all these conditions that have to happen for the flower to be a flower, that that in of itself resulted in a shift in your own way of relating to the world and your own sense of self. And that is, that's the immediacy or the practicality of the teaching. And so I would say trust that. That is um, onward leading, as they say. Thank you, Alex, for the teaching tonight. Um, I have really felt it helpful that you um, talked about changing your profession and that grief that came along with that. And um, I've had an experience in the last several months where a little while back um, I made a major change in my profession, had a major change in health um, that kind of was tied to that. Um, recognize some needs for some changes with some core groups in my life and a belief system. Um, so I became what felt like very groundless, very suddenly. Mm. And um, tremendous grief in that. And mm. I think also in some ways like terror of like meeting groundlessness on so many levels in so many ways. And definitely as I strive to put a lot of attention and awareness effortfully into practice, finding then those moments of freedom. Um, And then noticing with time, there's becoming more freedom, more peace within that. 
um, and listening to a lot of teachings and a lot of people kind of explain some of their similar experiences of going, okay, you know, with time, this will too change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it's just still something that I work with a lot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like, okay, I kind of get it. <laughs> and then as soon as I do that, I go, but what is there to get? You know, what is my mind telling me mm. about how I need to be doing this practice or applying these principles or just living mm. in life in general and now? Mm. Um, and so I'd appreciate kind of thoughts, if you have any, about just how to practice without making the practice into something that aims to fix something mm that I know needs to not be fixed, but just experienced as mm. part of my curriculum for practice and being. Mm. Does that make sense, that question? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's that. Uh, can I ask one clarification? Sure. Uh, so in those moments where you were describing um, feeling the, uh, the terror or the angst, sure. yeah. um, what was it that shifted it in your own experience? What shifted what shifted when I was feeling, mm-hmm. shifted towards feeling terror or right. shifted? Because um, right now I don't, ex- I don't experience you as terror filled. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it comes and goes. Yes. It still does. I mean, it, yes. it, and I think just recognizing like the habit patterns of my mind and, and yes. what kinds of things I cling to or have aversion towards. Yeah. Um, I, I think it became with kind of a, a sense of self-annihilation almost, a feeling of yeah. that. And then recognizing through, you know, kind of listening to some teachings, like, that that's okay. Yes. That, that in fact, what that feeling is, is showing me where identity has been yes. as a reference point. Yep. And allowing it to be fluid. Yep. And like you said, kind of experience some of those more gaseous moments of, ah, oh, Chips, it changes, and that it always has, yes. and that it always will. Yes. Um, I think recognizing that in me, those moments of terror kind of filled with a sense of feeling of separateness, like, yeah. oh, I'm feeling self-annihilation, <laughs> I'm feeling that I don't know these things, and everybody else seems solid and fine. Yes. And, and just recognizing solidity has its benefits, it, it has its drawbacks, and yes. that we all experience that, and yes. I think just connecting with other people and hearing their stories in some ways allows me to honor what is important of the causes and conditions that brings me here, but also let go that we all have story. So connectedness, I guess. Yeah. And I think just striving for equanimity and knowing that there are times where that equanimity feels like split seconds and, and I feel all over the place and, and then just longer periods come. But I I think a lot of just befriending it, sitting with it. Yes. You know, so I think I wouldn't have much to add. The only two quick things I can say is that I think yeah. you've actually, in your own way, beautifully talked about all three characteristics. So there are the three marks. One mark is mm. impermanence. One mark yeah. is dukkha, which right. is just the rub of it. Yeah. And you, at times you experience that. And so the first noble yeah. truth is to be understood. Uh, yes. You know, right. Dukkha or suffering is like this. And in times... Right. That's all that we, that's what we experience. We meet it with as much balance and compassion and tenderness as we can. And that's the practice. And then there are the times where you move into a space of, oh, I see that. I see the pattern. Right. So then you're holding yeah. the view of not self. You're seeing how a reference point 
create some of that stickiness. That's helpful. That's helpful. What you've just said is that that is the non-self is recognizing the reference point of what the suffering is attached to by holding something that is mythical. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And one other point on that question, just a show of hands, how many people have at times felt the real uncertainty, the dukkha of life, right? <laughs> so, I mean, this, this is not insignificant because our mind constantly creates the perception, everybody else has got it together. It's just me that doesn't have it together. So that's significant, yeah. Uh, hi, my name's Chris. Um, I just want to share an experience that I've had lately of um, a shift in my perception. It's kind of happened throughout the summer, so I'm a I'm a pretty um, I'm pretty new to the practice. Uh, I started about a year and a half ago practicing and with mindfulness and um, and so I started learning about you know you start learning about how we're we're a, bun- we're a bundle of habits you know we're we're a bunch of habits. Uh, all these things that are revolving around and they, they come up for whatever reason and you notice how some of them cause suffering. And, and so I had identified some of my own habits, um, kind of identified some of them and kind of just realized like, wow, these are like conceptually, I was like, Oh wow, this, I'm like suffering because of these habits, you Mm -hmm. know? And then, so what I try to do is I try to like stop the habits, you know? Mm -hmm. But then I think, so my, so my perception at that point was, well, if I stop doing these things, I'll, I'll feel much better. And so it kind of worked for a time, but then I found that I was really kind of, you know, beating myself up over not being able to beat the habits, you know? Yes. And so the change of perception came, well, the, what's making me suffer is trying to change myself so much. Mm. Just trying to, like, force these habits to change. It's, mm. You know, you can't make a river, you can't, like, just divert the Mississippi River, you know, by with my, like, left arm, you know, I can't just be like, boom. <laughs> you know it doesn't doesn't work that way right, so right so i've actually i've taken a brief respite from my practice for a couple for a, about a month now and great um can i ask how has that felt that brief respite i've noticed you know i i, I would do i would you know for a while i was doing a lot of you know stretching and yeah. a lot of sitting time and i you know it felt really good to do that and then so i haven't been doing that as much and i noticed a lot more tension and so kind of picking it back up and i'm already feeling the just i'm noticing the uh the benefits from it and just how, how much better my body feels and Great. my mind. And, Great. um, so I'm kind of, I, but I, I did, I'm not, I'm not trying so much to stop the habits. I wasn't trying, you know, for those past months, I'm kind of just like seeing, seeing what happens normally without the, without the practice. And, and it kind of like these things come up and I'm like, wow, like it's interesting. Like, cause it's a, it's, they're different. They're, it's just, it's just different how I notice them without seeing them as complete, you know, terrible things. Yes. You know, seeing them as it's part of me and it, you know, I, I came, I'm, I'm this way for who knows however many reasons. And it's just, yeah. I don't know. I think it's uh interesting seeing how it's just not non judgment and yes. not pushing. I'm kind of trying to let the be intimate with it more, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. That's beautiful. So what I'm hearing in that is you're taking the long view. You're holding a long view of a lifetime of practice rather than in this moment, I should be that way, which is an idealized sense of how things should be, right? We can often see a Buddha statue, a Buddha Rupa, and we see that it's sitting in perfect 
lotus, the Buddha sitting in perfect lotus position, hand, the face is just completely, you know, no affect, and we think, oh, yeah, that. But the reality is, right, that, that this was lifetimes of practice, right? Long, long views. And yet our mind is very quick to idealize and have shoulds or shouldn'ts. And so that's beautiful what you're describing. Um, just really holding it with a sense of patience, of compassion, of kindness, and even just a sense of the vastness of this doesn't need to be any other way. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we have time for just one more. And, not, and just to say this isn't the end. I hope that you continue to kind of ask and discuss with each other because that's the wisdom of the community. And I hope you hear in each of the comments and reflections there's this individual wisdom. Hi. Uh, my question is a, a little off topic for tonight. Sure. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference between a preference and craving. I find myself not knowing exactly when which is happening. Okay. Um, I'm thinking about having ice cream when I get home, and I'm thinking to myself, am I craving it or am I just preferring it? Ah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and some of the definitions that I've heard are looking for things like, can I maintain my equanimity yeah. um, if I don't get ice cream? Yeah. Yeah. But then I don't want to test myself to find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess, what do you look for to tell the difference? What are kind of the telltale signs? Um, I mean, do you, uh, do you test yourself often to find out, oh, was I, was I craving that there or was I just... I, I don't know what the, the different word for preference, um, but yeah. the non-craving, the choice you make because it seems good, natural, I don't know. What yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, get, I get exactly what you're pointing at. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious, just as you were saying that, w- did you notice the levity or the humor, right? Just both in the room and with yourself. I saw you smile when you were talking about preference versus craving. So one thing that I would say to point to is how are you holding the experience? So if there's a degree of levity, like what we just heard in the room and your own expression of it, then you're holding it with a a little bit of lightness. And yes, there's you know likely some craving in there, but the level of craving, you know, and the and the harm, let's say, that comes from that uh, is not the harm that comes from um, those deep places of, uh, it's almost like we feel as though there's no choice. We feel as though there is no possibility of a preference. We simply react or we simply reach out and we have no sense of any pause, momentariness, spaciousness, any moment of reflection. That is what I would say the full fire of craving. Craving is those moments where it feels as though I have an insatiable thirst that will not be quenched until I have or experience something. And that's on a different magnitude than, you know, a bowl of ice cream. And so we can, we can play with uh, craving at these different levels. So just as you're playing with this, you know, in your mind, you're like, well, do I have the ice cream? Do I not have the ice cream? You're checking it out. You're seeing how it affects 
you know, how do you feel? And, but it's on a small level. And so when we practice on these small levels, they have large impacts. And the last thing that I'll say from the Buddhist teachings is that um, there's actually a whole teaching on you use craving up until the very end. So you can even say that there's craving for liberation. I want to have craving for the end of suffering, right? But that's a more wholesome craving than, you know, I want craving for something to numb out my experience of life. And so we can actually, in the Buddhist teachings, it said that you use craving as a stepping stone. So you let go of the less um, skillful forms and you move towards more skillful ones and you see the effect. So how are you living your life? How are you in your life? And let that be the litmus test rather than any particular experience. So thank you all for your practice and your presence. I hope that something I shared was useful um, and that you continue to practice. And I'll turn it over to, I think, is there a program host? I'm not quite sure if there's a program host for the evening. Or... Okay, so no, no program host. So I could, I, could, I could wrap it up quickly, which is just to say that this entire center is um, based on Donna. So it's on this concept of generosity, and it's significant. This is actually very in contrast to uh, the way that the, the world normally operates, which is this kind of transaction model. Uh, you know, I've been given something, so then I have to give something in return. And so these teachings are freely offered. And if you would like to practice generosity, then you have the option to do that. You can leave a donation for uh, the center. There's a, a bowl outside. And a certain percentage, I think it's 40% goes to the center and 60% would go to support my uh, continued study and teaching and practice. And to say that it is a practice. So hold it as a practice. It's not a should. It's not a shouldn't. And actually your presence is its own form of generosity. And you can reflect on the fact that your coming here tonight is a form of that generosity. And you can reflect on how the mind feels. So it's often talked about how generosity brightens the mind and opens the heart. So in a moment of generosity, remember to reflect on your own beautiful quality of being generous. And also reflect on the larger community. When you are generous, you are supporting not only yourself, but everyone else that comes in contact. So... The Buddha always started his teachings on generosity. He said that's what was the foundation for opening the heart and the mind. So thank you for your generosity and for your practice, which is a real deep form of generosity. So I wish you a wonderful evening, and I'll stay around if there are any questions. Thank you so much. Oh, and if you'd like to sign up, I have a, a, there's a group in Northeast that I lead. There's a mailing list if you're interested. I'll just mention that. Thank you so much for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.